Psalm 139 in your Bibles this evening. Psalm 139. Excuse me. Yeah, Psalm 139. (laughs) I looked down and I had the wrong place. Psalm 139 in your Bibles. For the next uh, 15 or 20 or maybe 25 minutes, I want to talk with you about uh, Psalm 139. We looked at this psalm last week. I'm not going to re-preach all of those things that we talked about, but the psalmist is seeing God uh, in his transcendence and in his greatness, uh, seeing God in the attributes that are displayed so that um, he's praising God and he's thanking God. And even though he sees God in his greatness and in his transcendence and in his majesty, he's not afraid of God in the sense that he's not carrying on a, a conversation. We see the pronouns, they're back and forth, uh, and you see the Lord in him. There's a conversation that's going on back and forth. Uh, in these opening verses, in the first six verses, we see the, um, uh, the omniscience of God. That is, he's all-seeing. He knows everything. And the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You, have, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And, of course, we stopped last week and we talked through some of those phrases and some of the meanings of those phrases, but ultimately... Now, David comes to the end, and he says, when I think about God knowing everything, I just, I just can't understand that. I just can't comprehend all that there is to know about that. It's just beyond me uh, to attain uh, that there is someone that has such knowledge as that. He moves on to God's omnipresence. He moves from his omniscience to his omnipresence in verses 7 to 12. Uh, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So there's no way we can escape God's presence either, is there? Uh, He knows everything there is to know about us. There are no secrets that he does not know about us. And there is no way to escape his presence. No matter where we go, he will always be present. There's only one place where God's presence is absent, and that's hell. That's the lake of fire. Uh, Every other place God is, God is in every other place. You cannot hide from God. Of course, we talked last week about You know, when you think about big brother government doing that, that's creepy. But when you think about God doing it, it's comforting to know that God knows everything there is to know about us and that God uh, is present everywhere. But then he moved to God's omnipotence, God's power. And you would think if he was going to talk about God's power, he would talk about, you know, the, the universe. He would talk about the galaxies. He'd talk about the stars. And there are plenty of places where it talks about God's omnipotence in relationship to that aspect of creation. But instead of talking about those kinds of things, to talk about his, om, his omnipotence, he talks about the creation of life in the mother's womb. And I, I think I got a little bit preachy last week about abortion, right? 
Well, I did. Some of you might not have been here to hear it, but I did. Uh, but he talks about God's omnipotence by talking about the forming of life in a mother's womb. And the taking of that life is unjustified. And I read to you a letter that I wrote to someone. Verse 13 to, uh, down to verse 18 are where we see his omnipotence. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And we stopped and talked about some of these words. And that my soul knows very well my frame. That's his skeleton. The bones of his body was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Speaking of the mother's, uh, of the mother's womb. Verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And then he says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I, shall still, I am still with you. And so he concludes this section uh, of talking about God's omnipotence and the creation of life in a mother's womb, he does so by saying God's thinking about us and God's thoughts to, to us and toward us are precious thoughts and they're more innumerable than the sands of the sea. And so that's the God we serve. We serve a God who's omnipresent. We serve a God who's omnipotent. We serve a God who's omniscient. He knows all things. He is everywhere and he has all power. That is the God that we serve. But when you get to the next little section, beginning in verse 19 down to 22, a, a lot of people believe this particular section of Psalm 139 is an interpolation. Uh, it's, uh, it's been taken from somewhere else and it's been inserted here because the words are so different than everything that has gone before. The tone of these, of these verses is so different than the tone of all of the previous verses. But the reality is, this is exactly what David said. And you can imagine when we read these words and we talk about them here for a few minutes, you can imagine the kind of experiences that David had in the course of his life. He was surrounded by the enemies of God on a constant basis. He was surrounded by those who hated God, they hated the people of Israel, and they hated David specifically. They hated God, they hated the people of Israel, and they hated David, the king of Israel. If you want to sort of get a feel for the kind of enemies that surrounded him on a constant basis, you only need to think about how Iran thinks about Israel and how they would be glad to be able to wipe them, as they say, off the face of the map so that they no longer existed. David was surrounded by those kinds of enemies that would have delighted in being able to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so David comes in this prayer talking about the omnipresence and omnipotence and omniscience of God and about how God's thoughts are, are, are precious toward us, God's precious thoughts to us. And he, he tells us what's really going on in his heart because what these next, these next three verses or four verses say to us is David is loyal to God. I see who God is. Are, are you with me? Stay with me here. I see who God is. I see his transcendence. I see his omnipotence. I see his omniscience. I see his omnipresence. I see the greatness of God. 
And God, I want you to know I'm surrounded by these enemies that would love to destroy me and to destroy your people and who hate you. But God, I want you to know my heart in the midst of all of this is loyal to you. I am loyal to you. These are the words of a man who was saying, I am loyal to you. God, you have been so precious to me. Your thoughts to me are so precious. Your care for me, you've watched over me. You go before me. You come behind me. Lord, you know everything there is about me. And God, I'm so grateful for you. And Lord, I want you to know you are the affection of my heart. And those who hate you, I hate. And those who are against you, I'm against. Lord, I am loyal to you. This is not an interpolation. These are the words of a man who has seen God, and he said, God, everything I am and everything I have is yours, and I am loyal and faithful, and I am consistent, I'm consistently following you. Now listen to these words. Verse 19, he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, Wouldn't you pray that way if you were surrounded by enemies that wanted to destroy your people, destroy you, and who hated your God? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. Get out of my sight. Go away from me. My heart is God's. You will never turn me away from God. You will never turn me away from God. My heart is devoted to God, he says. Verse 20, for they speak against you. Notice it. They speak against you, God, wickedly. I mean, they have all of these evil things to say about you. They have all of this terrible, all these terrible things that they say about you, God. Your enemies take your name in vain. Can we just stop there for a moment? Is it not uh, disappointing to you, as I know it is to me, the way people misuse the name of God. And you do understand that taking the Lord's name in vain is more than just using his name in a curse word. That using his name in a careless manner is taking his name in vain. Is not treating it as something that is holy. And you see here what he's saying. Your enemies take your name in vain. They treat it as if it's just nothing. They talk about you and they speak against you and they say all manner of evil against you, God. They they don't have any respect for you. They don't have any honor for you at all. They don't even care what they say about you or how they talk about you or the name they use about you. They don't care about any of those things. But then he says, verse 21, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? You see, he's asking it as a question. Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You know my heart is loyal to you. Don't I hate those that hate you? Am I not loyal to you? And I'm against those who are against you. I'm fighting off and standing against those that are against you. You see what he's saying? Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Then he says, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now again, you you can understand David in a world where It was filled with war. 
And the nations around him wanted to destroy the people of Israel, wanted to destroy David, and who had no reverence or respect for the God of Israel. You can understand the deep emotion that David feels at this moment toward the enemies of God. But let's just talk here for a moment. Because the reality is every Christian who is commanded to love, to love uh, their neighbor as themselves, commanded to love those within the family of God because that displays that we are disciples of Jesus. Every Christian who is commanded to love must also have a hate life, a life that hates that which is against God and hates the philosophy and the ideals and the ambitions of those who want to destroy God and who want to destroy the ways of God. Every Christian has to have a hate life. Let me, let me put it in, in these terms. I don't think there's any question that you know that I love Mary and my family more than I love anybody else on the face of the earth. Now, I love other people, but I love Mary and my family more than anybody else on the face of the earth. If you are opposed to my wife and you harm my wife in some way or you threaten my wife in some way, you better believe you're going to find out what I think about you. You're going to see that my loyalty is to her and to my children. You try to take her down, you're going to have to go through me to get to her. <laughs> that won't be hard. She's a lot tougher than I am. <laughs> You're going to have to go through me to take her down. She has the absolute loyalty of my heart unreservedly, completely, till the day I die. She has it. Now, you feel that way about your loved ones, don't you? That's what he's describing here. Here is a man who so deeply loves God that anyone who threatens God Anyone who comes against the people of God, which are the apple of his eye, anybody who comes against the things of God, he says, I hate them. Why? Because they want to destroy God. He's saying, in essence, my heart is loyal to you, and you'll have to go through me. I will stand with God every single time and pray that the enemies of God will be wiped out. And there has to be in a Christian's life, as there is in a husband's life for his wife, there has to be not only a, a heart of love for his wife or your wife, there has to be even a, an issue of hate if somebody tries to harm or cause destruction to or do some kind of damage to. You have to step in and say, you're going to fight? We're going to fight. You're going to go with me first. We're going we're to rumble together first. Are you all with me? It, would you not say that about your family? I mean, if somebody broke into your house tonight and was going to try to take your children out of their bed and going to kidnap them, take them to, know, to, 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 to do who knows what, would you be willing to take a gun and stop them dead in their tracks? Absolutely you would. That's what David is saying. I love God. I know who God is. I know how great God is. He doesn't need my help. God can handle his enemies without me, 
But I want you to know I am so loyal to God that all of these other nations around that hate me, that hate the people of God, and hate the God of this people, I want you to know that my heart is loyal to God, and I hate all of those who stand against God. And wherever there is love, there's inevitably going to be the emotion of hate if somebody is threatening the one you love. Someone is seeking to harm the one you love. Now, I say all of that for this reason. We, we live in a society where if you say anything negative about any cultural issue, you're automatically labeled a hater. Uh, you have a phobia of some kind. They will come down on you with everything they have to get you to be silent as quickly as they can. But I want you to understand something that we as followers of Jesus Christ have a responsibility not only to love the good, but to hate the evil. And it's not that we hate the people necessarily that are doing those things, though sometimes that is how it comes across. It is the ideology. It is the philosophy. It is the ideals. It is the anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-moral, anti-Bible perspective that they're pushing on us that we hate because we know that it destroys people's lives. And if you love God with all of your heart and your heart is loyal to God and you know that God is the only answer to the mess that's going on around us, then you inevitably hate anything that they concoct that's brought up that's going to destroy people and keep them away from God. You inevitably hate it. Take the subject of homosexuality or transgenderism, and I want to be careful because we have children in the room. But take the subject of homosexuality and transgenderism. I, wouldn't, I would be willing to sit down with any one of them, take my Bible out and show them the love of Jesus and be kind. As a matter of fact, I did that this past week. To be kind and to be considerate. But what they believe in the ideals that they hold and the philosophy that they espouse, I will never accept it. I will despise it and I will hate it until I'm in the presence of Jesus Christ. You cannot love flowers without hating the weeds that grow up and destroy the flowers. You cannot love the sun without hating the clouds that constantly cover it and keep you from being able to enjoy it. You, you cannot have a love for your spouse if you, don't, if you don't hate something that will destroy or harm in some way the one you say you love. And if we say that we love God and our hearts are loyal to God, then inevitably there's going to be some measure of hatred. Maybe that's not the best word to use in today's society, but there's going to be a measure of hatred toward anything that is evil that sometimes is misunderstood to be hatred for the person, but the reality is it's hatred for the philosophy and the ideals that are motivating the person. You, you do understand that the world that we live in is anti-God, it is anti-Christian, it is anti-moral, it is anti-Bible in every way. It didn't always used to be to the degree it is today, but it is blatant. You remember when they, uh, the, the, uh, 
the homosexual community said, we just want marriage. We just want marriage. We want to be able to have the same legal rights as a, a man and a woman have in marriage so that we can have the division of properties and so forth that are, you know, that are provided under the protections of the law. We just want to be married. Anybody who knew anything and had any sense and had any spiritual discernment knew that that was like opening Pandora's box. And every other form of evil was coming out of it. I just read an article, as I tell you, I read a lot of articles. I just read a news article about a 10-year-old transgender, I don't know if you say boy or girl, he is a boy acting as a girl in the modeling industry. Have you read the articles about the pride marches that go on in different cities and go on in our own city? And have you noticed anything about the bizarre, perverted kinds of conduct and activity in which they're involved and they expose children to it? Let me ask you a question. Is it wrong to stand against sex slavery? It is not wrong to stand against sex slavery. We would stand and we would fight against that kind of thinking and that kind of ideal and that kind of philosophy. We would oppose it with all of our being. But... Our churches today and a lot of Christians today have decided, let's just be quiet about sexual matters because it brings down the wrath of the community because they are determined that you will approve it. You'll not just allow it, you will approve it. And if you don't approve it, we will see to it that you can't get work, that you're miserable where you live, that you can't find a place to eat, where you can be quiet and nobody will bother you. We will see to it that you're bombarded in your email. Trust me, the days to come. Bombarded in your email and in your phone calls. We're going to leave you messages. We're going to make your life a living hell. And if you don't, Feel like David, Lord, my heart is loyal to you. And while I don't hate any one person and I want every person to come to faith in Jesus and to know the, the gospel of Christ that can set them free and, and cause them to, to understand the, the incredible grace of God that'll save them, I hate the philosophy and the ideals and the perspective and uh, the, the things that are driving us in that direction. Ephesians chapter 6 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The problem really isn't the people necessarily. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the wickedness of darkness. There is the prince of the power of air. Who do you think is behind things that are anti-God, that oppose God, that want to destroy the people of God, who want to take down the word of God? Who do you think is behind that? Satan is behind those kinds of ideals in those kinds of thinking. But what does the Apostle Paul say? Keep your place there in Psalm 139. Go back with me for a moment. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And, and notice what he says. I'm almost through here, so stay with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Well, look at verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, and circle it every time you, you see this phrase or the word against, put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against, stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but 
against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. The the Greek word literally means to resist, to turn back, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand. Then he says, verse 14, stand. You get the idea that the Christian is supposed to stand and there are times we're supposed to stand against that the display of our loyalty to God Are you with me? The display of our loyalty to God is that we hate the evil way that is destroying the people of God. And the degree to which you love God is worked out in the degree to which you hate the evil. Now listen, when I talk about hate, I never am talking about violence. I'm never talking about oppression. I'm never talking about being mean or or, or cruel to any individual or any person. I'm talking about the philosophy and the ideals that are driving it, that are demonic. A young child on a pole, you know what I'm talking about? In the arms of a transgender, again, I think it's a man who is acting as a woman, in a crowd of people, in a picture, in the news, if you can look at that and say, that's okay, and it doesn't cause some depth of emotion within you, there's something wrong with you. When they say, let's teach our children at any point for this matter, but for this particular illustration, from kindergarten to third grade, about these kinds of issues, do you understand that's hatched out of hell? It's hatched out of hell, and we should stand against it. Is it going to cost us? It's going to cost us. Is it going to hurt? It's going to hurt. Does it mean we won't be able to eat at some places? It may well mean we can't eat at some places. It may well mean that you lose your job which Christians in the first century often did because they identified with Jesus. They lost their job, and thus the Christians in Jerusalem needed the help of the Gentile churches to be able to have their needs met because they couldn't find employment because they were followers of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. And here is what's scary to me, the number of Christians who've just taken a soft position about it. This is not political, though this particular administration is pushing this issue in great ways and significant ways. It's not just, it's not a political issue. This is a moral issue. And if we don't feel like the psalmist, Lord, I hate what they're doing. I hate what they're forcing on our children. I hate the ideology and the philosophy. Listen, we have someone in the administration who is transgender. He born a man and is now a woman with long blonde hair. If you don't know who you are, do you really have the judgment to be able to make these kinds of big decisions in life? Please understand, I believe in gender dysphoria. I believe it's real. But you don't tell somebody who's struggling with that gender dysphoria What you need to do is go with what you subjectively are and 
change what objectively you were born to be. No, it needs to be reversed. This is who you are. This is what you are. And subjectively, we need to find out why you don't feel like your gender says you are. You don't give into that philosophy, but it's happening. And here's the part that bothers me the most. Churches are doing it all the time. The United Methodist Church is about to split into two, sec- two segments over the issue of homosexuality and the, the right to marry homosexuals in the church. Why should that even be a discussion? I mean, in the beginning, God made man and woman, and they weren't confused. And if there is confusion, it's because of the sin nature. It's because of the curse of sin, and we don't give in to the subjectivity of what you feel and change what you are objectively. We recognize what you are objectively and help you to understand that you've got to come back into alignment. You don't go get surgeries as they're offering to our children. What teenager knows enough about life to have a sex change surgery? As a matter of fact, uh, what do they know? How how much do they know to to get a tattoo? (laughs) Nothing sinful about a tattoo, by the way. But if I had gotten a tattoo when I was a teenager, it would be a much larger tattoo (laughs) than it is today. Or, excuse me, I don't have one than it is today. Or I would get old in, ra- in you know, my wrinkled skin and baggy skin, and it'd be flopping over like this, you know? <laughs> now, look, I'm not against t- tattoos. Some of them look very pretty. Some of them are very nice. I'm just saying, do kids really have the wisdom and the understanding to make the life decision that I'm going to change my gender? You can't change your gender, by the way that I'm going to try to change my gender, I got, I've got news for you. They're not anywhere near smart enough or wise enough to be able to do that. And I don't understand why Christians and churches who understand that sex slavery is something they should oppose, why they think that all of these other sexual perversions are things that, things that they can accept. I don't understand that. What I know is this, if you love God with all of your heart and you see who he is and you know who he is and you know what he's done and you understand his word and you understand who God, the greatness of God, the transcendence of God, your heart should be loyal to him such that anything else, anywhere else that stands against him, you stand against because you stand against with God. Did I say enough about that? I probably need security after the service. Did I say enough about it? Just, I want you to understand where your church stands and where your pastor stands. We're not looking for fights and arguments, but it scares me the number of young people who've been raised in an educational system that teaches them a radical gender ideology, teaches them a radical feminism and masculinity, that teaches them the radical ideals of the world, the philosophy of the world, it scares me. 
It scares me. I, I, don't, I say that lightly. I'm not, I'm not you know, walking around nervous or anything. I'm talking about it bothers me. Because it ought to be clear. It ought to be clear. God made in the beginning a man and a woman. They came together and they made children. You can't make children with two women or two men. It takes a man and a woman. And that's how God made it. We should be what? The, the, the point here is we should be loyal to God. Loyal to God. We see who he is. We know what he's done for us. We know how he changed us. We know how he can change other people. We should be loyal to God. He sees everything there is to see. He knows everything there is to know. He's all-powerful, even to the place of forming a baby in a mother's womb. And his thoughts toward us are precious thoughts. He thinks good thoughts toward us. When we know who God is, I'm going to be loyal to God no matter what the society around me is doing. I'm going to be loyal to God, and I'm going to say what is right, and I'm going to stand for what is truth. A young man that I know left his job and took another job. He was working for a company that worked for AT&T. AT&T was requiring him to sign a diversity agreement that you, you will approve of and accept this kind of behavior, and he could not sign the agreement. Had to leave his job and find another job, and God gave him a good job, by the way. Had to leave his job. Mary and I were shopping. Uh, Mary was shopping. <laughs> we walked by a storefront, a men's store storefront. Two sharp-looking young men dressed very nicely, holding hands together. It's in our faces everywhere. If you've turned on your television set, I heard a parent say, I wonder should I let my children watch this particular program or not? I didn't say anything on social media because I don't think that's the place to do it, but I wanted to scream. A little bit of sexuality, a little bit of sex on screen, a little bit of cursing, all of it is bad. None of it is good for your kids. You don't say, well, a little bit won't hurt them. they got to grow up in this world. they got to get used to seeing these things. You don't have to introduce it to them. They will get enough of it without you introducing it to them. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. You don't have to put it in front of them. David comes to the end of the psalm. He moves from an indicative at the beginning of the psalm, verse 1. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me. You've already known me. You've already searched me. But he comes to the end of the psalm because he's now talking about his loyalty to God. And he says, in, as an imperative, he says, search me, oh, God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, things that I'm afraid of, things that cause me concern. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you see the contrast? There is a wicked way. There is a way everlasting. And David says, Lord, I want you to see my heart and I want you to expose anything that might turn me away from you because my absolute loyalty is to be to you and to no one else, period.
And that's true for you, and that's true for me. That's true for our young people. That's true for our children. That's true for young adults. That's true for singles, and that's true for married people. So let me ask you a question. If uh, I said to Mary, honey, I'm going to bring another woman into our relationship, Do you think she should stand against that? Moral evil should be opposed, period. If it's in my life or it's in your life, whether it's the commonly accepted thing of the day or it's out of vogue, we should stand against it. Aren't you glad I'm through that? Psalm 103 comes next. It's all about praising God. 